Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. Also with us today, and for these four episodes that center around Fordism, what it means and where it came from, and the impact of Fordism on all of us, we've had the good fortune of having my brother and I would say the conscience of the Serino family, Mr. Tom Serino, is with us. Very happy to have him with us uh, during these conversations and to get his sense of things. Tom's a thinker and he's somebody who has been analyzing our situation for a long time. And when I need to get grounded, I usually call up Tom. Of course, we have also Dr. Chuck Stead. And uh, Chuck, what are we going to talk about today? Well, we've been talking about the background to Ford, and now we're getting into the actual plant at Mawa, how it landed there, and what the consequence of having that uh, localized plant in our Ramapo watershed. Without any further ado, Mr. Stead, take it away. Thank you, Joe. Now, in the May of 1953, Angus M. Harris, manager of the Ford plant in Edgewater, New Jersey, told his workers that a new plant in the village of Mawa, Bergen County, New Jersey, was to be built, and they could put in for a transfer to that location. Ford had announced that the choice of the new site was based on low-tax structure, availability of labor, water supply, good transportation facilities, and open space. Certainly, all of this was true, but the quiet negotiations with the Erie Land and Improvement Company to build a rail spur and a yard with access to an existing yard in Suffern, New York, played a fairly significant role. In addition to this, the site was at the opening of the Ramapo Valley, just along the New Jersey-New York state line, where the New York State Thruway traversed, rounding the bend at the foot of Nordkoff Mountain. Access to the thruway was paramount to Ford. Apparently, New Jersey Governor Alfred Driscoll agreed, pledging $3 million for widening improvements and building on an overpass for Route 17. Until then, this road had been a three-lane, undivided highway and was heavily trafficked, and it had a history of numerous accidents and deaths. Historians Bischoff and Kahn have noted, symbolically, the Ford factory broke Mawa's ties to the rural past and more closely linked it with the nation's new technological era. This break from the village's rural ties introduced to the surrounding area of the Ramapo Valley a paradigm shift that would continue to resonate through the decades. For along with a hefty tax payment that covered an excess of 25% of the local Mawa property tax base, the region was now subject to the largest automobile plant in the country. The plant's floor space measured about 2 million square feet. Before long, over 5,000 workers were employed, and by 1960, they had built 1 million cars. The scientific management of Fordism settled into the valley at Mawa, and by its immensity alone, it would take on the people and the environment of Ramapo in both states. One cannot speak of Mawa Ford without speaking of the New York State Thruway. Both were up and running by 1955, Both are products of the automobile age, and both would have a resounding impact on the region. Then, New York State Governor Thomas Dewey wrote that the region would move virtually overnight 20 years into the future with the building of the thruway. Now close to 60 years later, the huge impact of a thruway that brought with it a massive ex-urbanite pilgrimage, transforming a low-key outer county into a suburban extension of the metropolitan era, well, it has taken its toll. 
The Ford Mallwall plant, which closed in 1980, continues to reveal a lasting legacy of toxic pollution secreted throughout the Ramapo watershed, yet another example of Fordism. For if we are to truly comprehend this social and economic strategy that allowed for a reckless distribution of environmental contamination, it is necessary to appreciate its contribution to separatism and bigotry from the earliest days of Ford's anti-Semitism to the automated plant designs of the 1950s that resulted in the gradual erosion of production jobs and forced workers into an accelerated pace to keep up with the machines. Historian Stephen Myers has written that the norms of Fordism persist with the basic thrust of automotive technical innovation, informing the further degradation of labor. He believes that unless the premises about production, machines, and worker changes, the workers will continue to have diluted skills, intensified work, and eliminated possible future jobs. Ford Mawa was a modern plant steeped with the scientific management legacy of Fordism, a strategy that praised efficiency and streamlined production always with an eye to the bottom line. Uncle Mao may have chosen to drive an international over a Ford pickup truck, but he admired Ford, the man and his industry, often repeating the story of Ford's common man appeal, his chumming with the likes of Burroughs, Edison, and Firestone, and mulling over the histrionics of the prodigals of Zion. Mao, like my father, was a house painter, and he was very opinionated about what he called the anti-lead propaganda. He railed against the likes of Rachel Carson and argued that liberals had a financial incentive in deletting paint. He believed that industry could regulate itself and that progressives were the downfall of a technocratic economy. My Aunt Evelyn, like a few of my aunts, worked at the Avon Cosmetic Plant in Suffren. Mal was proud of Avon's success just as much as he was of Ford's, and he warned me not to fall in with the malcontents and the anti-industrialists. My father, Waltstead, did not recall that there was really any opposition to the news that Ford was coming to the valley. While there was resistance to the building of the New York State Thruway, Ford was considered to be the silver lining of the Thruway cloud. Opening its doors in 1955, Ford was an icon to American know-how, a beacon to orderly capitalist free enterprise, and a model of virtuous industrial success. But behind the long gray building complex, behind the massive Ford logo, there was a gathering of steel drums containing a cocktail of noxious chemicals, lead-based paint sludge filled with drying agents, solvents, plasticizers, and heavy metals. This waste was the cast-off from industry. And the bottom line, according to Fordism, was this material needed to be removed from production. It needed to be dealt with. Although the man has been gone for more than half a century, Ford's presence remains very much a part of his legacy. His romanticism about an American past rich with simple rural values, seasoned with the sentimentality of McGuffey readers, would be the harmless whimsy of a pastoral poet had he not been a determined, self-made industrialist. In search of an order on which to blame the shortcomings of society, Ford found his fabled Shylock, calling for the pound of flesh, and proceeded to demonize an entire people, feeding fuel to the flames of fascism. 
What is significant about Fordism is that this brand of scientific worker management emerged from a man who craved the power to determine societal status over others. Ford did not see himself as a winner among losers. Rather, he saw himself as a winner against the losers. Frederick Turner may have developed management theory, but Fordism took it further into population management theory. By reducing the skills required to complete a task on the assembly line, Ford reduced the value of individual workers. By guaranteed pay based on output, Ford built incentive into production. And by union busting, Ford eliminated an alternate voice for the workforce, further reducing their bargaining power. At best, Fordism was a highly successful profit-making management system. At worst, it was the undermining of the American workforce. The move from Edgewater, New Jersey to Mawa, New Jersey in the Ramapo Hills sought fresh ground, a greater traffic corridor, as well as a new source of inexpensive employment. The exponential growth in the boon years of auto production was a reminder that a greater tonnage of waste would need new outlets. This opportunistic maneuver reflects the role that Ford industry played in the wartime exploitation of slave labor at its own Ford Werk plant during the Nazi regime in Germany. Henry Ford's industrial workforce management system of Fordism complemented fascist methodology. It became the American justification to the anti-Semitism spewing out of the national socialistic machinery. Given this history... There is little doubt that the population of the watershed at Ramapo, along with the contamination of the people there, was the inevitable fallout of Fordism. Damn. There you go. Yeah, yeah, that's what happened. That is what happened. Definitely see the correlation between... Uh, Ford's, uh, Henry Ford's anti-Semitism and bigotry and how it kind of grew into a way of being for Ford, the company, and for many companies and for corporations that they would use the lesser people as they saw them to do their bidding and keep themselves comfortable and, and sleep very well at night doing so. so. Well, if you can dismiss a whole group of people... <laughs> Through anti-Semitism, I don't think you're going to worry too much about about anybody else. Right. And that's the thing. You know, Henry Ford was a member of an aristocracy that still exists today. We call them the one percenters, I guess, today. But it's an aristocracy that lives far and above us, that appears in many instances to be above our laws, and seems to be able to skirt around... Uh, you know, the ramifications of their of their wrongdoings because they have a cast of... Chuck, I think you mentioned we have too many lawyers last week, and I think you're right. The problem is, not only do we have too many lawyers, but they seem practiced and truly expert in neutralizing our regulations and our laws. Right. They do it better now than they ever have, to the extent that the only solution would be new laws because they've learned how to play these. The hotbed of lawyers in America is Washington, D.C., yeah, I was going to say lawyers, it's the politicians. More lawyers there you know, than anywhere. Are all lawyers, yeah, so it yeah. really is a catch-22. It, it's basically no denuded the Superfund Act, which was uh, pioneered in 1980, and it was terribly important in terms of getting industry to you know pay up, to, to deal with what it's done. And when we get into the later episodes, you're going to hear about the um, 
we'll call it the dysfunctionalism of Superfund up in Ringwood, which was why I argued with our, our town of Ramapo board in, in New York at the time, a, a different board than the one that's there now, quite, quite different. I argued with them not to bring our issue to the Superfund, to the federal level, but to keep it on the state level because our federal level has been eroded worse than our state level, and they've all been eroded. States' rights, home rule, in terms of contamination, is very important because you're dealing with people who are right there on the ground. And the people living much closer to the problem. Right. You said that these lawyers have gotten very good at expert at getting around these laws, but the fact is, even when these people lose, when they're convicted, these lawyers are very good at making it somehow so they don't have to pay or they appeal it, they break it down. By the end, there's no accountability. And there's also no more super fun because lawyers slowly eat away at this thing until right. someone makes a decision like any other class action suit. And I literally got a $14 check two weeks ago for my Apple iPhone 6 because the battery was dying and I joined that class action suit. I guarantee you, I didn't pay $14 for that phone. It worked for my iPhone 7 or 8, the one I got half it. it so who won, who won that battle? Who won that one? The lawyers won the that. The lawyers won it, of so course. you have lawyers winning that, you have lawyers in our government. We have too many lawyers, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the classic case for uh, the Ramapos, of course, is Man v. Ford, uh, if you saw that yes. documentary. HBO. And, yep, the HBO film, Man v. Ford, and it's a tragedy. It's a hard, I show it in my classes to my undergrads, That's and great. it's hard for me to watch it because the, the tragedy plays out over and over and over again. And, you know, you almost don't blame the lawyer's ineptitude. The structure of the legal system itself is so stacked against the victims. Right. And, and in this case, against the non-white population who have to play by the rules that have been established by industry. The, the, the rules are catered to industry. And, and the way that case plays out, it's like you got, you got raped by the legal system who right. was sweeping in to protect you from the previous raping. And, right. and you got it again. You, got, yes. you were victims and you got re-victimized and you want to do this again, you can come back and do it again so you can be re-victimized. And, and the problem that lies deep in that is today in our society, there's a tremendous distrust of government. And there shouldn't be, because government is all we have. And when we talk about a government by and for the people, we are the government. We have to reinstill our presence in the government to make it work. Absolutely. And when we allow these clowns to run the government in the way in which they're running it, we're kind of to blame as well. You turn on C-SPAN and you watch the halls of Congress, all these old white guys yeah. I'm sorry, there's more women now than there ever have been. And still, when you see that long scan shot, you can't spot them. Mm-hmm. Nor can you spot the non-white people. Right. And, and come on, guys, it's, you know, we're going on 50 years since the great civil rights movement to, to bring a level of equity and fairness. And, and we're not there yet. No, not We're at not all. there yet. And then, of course, you see an empty hall. Oh, yeah, most of them are empty not even hall. there to begin with. You know, I, so many of them are just home just enjoying their, their national health care, which is what they have, because they will never lose their health care. The, the best health care yeah. in the nation. In the are, world. In the world are our congressmen and senators. That they get to debate our health care yes. is nuts. 
is crazy. I mean, that's the system. That's the structure of the system that we're talking about. Yeah, all I want is their health care. Wouldn't that be nice? Fine. You know, I think what this is revealing, this whole very sordid and unfortunate episode with Ford, it's revealing why we don't trust government anymore. It's revealing if you're white and you're in that aristocracy, meaning you're very rich and you are white, male, and rich, you pretty much do live above the law. Even yes. if you're prosecuted, all of these wonderfully, freshly minted, brilliant lawyers that are coming out of Yale and Harvard, frankly, those two colleges, those two universities seem to be the, the most aggressive source of really corrupt people. I mean, people that just don't get, you know, look at Ted Cruz, look at uh, Ron DeSantis, look at Josh Hawley. These are all people that came through the, the Harvard and Yale mill. And what are they doing for us? What, well, what have they done at, to us? What they're good at doing, especially if they realize they can't win, is delaying, delaying, delaying. They're playing the delaying. court system. And they're yeah. playing the system to yeah. a point yep. where a person who should have years ago been prosecuted uh, is still sitting back. Yeah, what are Trump's lawyers saying to him right now? Don't worry about it, man. We'll run out the clock and yeah. everything. You'll come back into power and you can dismiss all this stuff. You don't have right. to worry about anything. That's how so, can yeah. we trust our government when we see that kind of a thing? And how can any of our allies trust us when they see the way we behave? And that's, to well, me, that's what this, this whole story about the flat out is revealing. They can't and they don't anymore. And they really don't. The, those four years of MAGA Trumpism, but those four years eroded any kind of trust or belief in America. belief what, in, what in has our me, country. What has me really when concerned is when I talk to my students, two things stand out. First of all, when I tell them this story, like we read my book and, and right. we discuss this, two things stand out. And, and, and one is that they tend not to believe that they can be their government, that they can engage and make a difference. And that wasn't my experience as an undergrad student. That wasn't my experience when I was in high school. It may be hard. It may be harder for some of us than others, but we can find a way to get into the mechanism of, of government and we can participate. And, and they categorically do not believe this. That's one thing. And the other thing is their lack of knowledge of what came before. They have, like, I, I, I say to them, let's talk a little bit about, for example, McCarthyism. Because they were talking about the term witch hunt. So I said, let's talk about McCarthyism. And I think I told you this, Joe. I said, anybody in the room know what McCarthyism is? And one student raised her hand, and I thought, that's good. And I said, what is it? And she says, does it have something to do with the Beatles? Yeah, it's just incredible. And wow. so whatever the lesson plan was that day, it just got a 20-minute detour to talk about McCarthyism because right. they should know that. Sure, of course. They course. should really know that. Of course, that. it's vital. But that's an illustration of what we're not teaching them on levels before they get to the undergrad Right, level. and that's the importance of teaching history, but not only history, but the correct history. The inclusive um, history, that well, it's all there. Like the Cold War, mm -hmm. and like the Iron Curtain, and like the Berlin Wall, that probably people 40 and under don't remember at all. So now they look today and they go, well, what are you talking about? All they have to do is see. They can not only read, but they can see the history and see this evil empire, as Reagan called it, mm -hmm. and learn. But it seems that we're getting away from that. There's a hopelessness. They don't believe they can be part of the government. There's a hopelessness because this government has pulled away from 
we the people, and it's becoming... More and more autocratic all the yep, time. Yeah, and absolutely. This chair that I sit in, if I'm a politician, this is what's important. Not the country, not democracy. Money and power. Not anything else, but where I sit and how I stay here as long as I possibly can. A couple of weeks ago, I asked my students, what happened to the 60s? There was movement in the 60s, and then come the 70s, it seemed to be declining. Why do you think that happened? You know, one of them said, which I thought was not a bad answer, well, Vietnam winds down. The worst bombing in Vietnam happened just before we started to withdraw, so they didn't necessarily have the details correct. But at, at, at least they were talking about something. And, uh, but generally they said it wound down because everybody just got too high. So their template for the 60s was it was the time of being stoned. Yeah. And, and I, I encouraged, I gave them books to read. I said, you, you need to know that the youth culture in the, in, in the 60s was so powerful and so significant. Very activist. That right? it, yeah, and, and, and in an intelligent yeah. and creative way Quite the talk. that what happened in the 60s was the forces it was actually deconstructing needed to figure out a game plan to, to divide and conquer that youth movement, and they did, they did that. They did quite effectively do that. And the same goes with the civil rights movement. Not quite the feminist movement. I asked them about the feminist movement, and they said, well, we're recipients of the fe feminist movement, and that's why it's better now. And I said, how better is it? Uh, uh, where is, you know, equity? Where is equal pay? Yeah, where is ERA? Said, where is that? Is it better or does it look better? It right. looks someone, better. Because it looks better. Someone said, it, me too. Okay, now we're in the fight and now we have we brought ourselves 20 years forward. No, that's not how it works. You can say me too and you can recognize something, but it takes work. Maybe 20 years of work to get yourself up to equal pay and break the glass ceiling, as they call it, and, and really have equality between men and women. When you were in graduate school, this is not the way you felt. You, you felt like you could make a difference. That's why you wrote this book, because you felt like you could make a difference. Right. right. Will they write a similar book? I hope so. Because they need to. We need to, to rake the muck. We need to bring these truths and, they and make themselves evident to everybody. I, I will kick their ass if they don't. Good. <laughs> Because they need to be young. And they know that about me. <laughs> That's good. Because they need to be younger than us. And there are some. I can look at Greta Thunberg. The you know, it's interesting you mentioned there. Greta. The, the best, you know. the brightest, and, and I hope no one takes this the wrong way. The, the, the brightest and most active and articulate minds in my classes among my students are always women. They're always Absolutely. women. Yeah. Yep. And it's just, it's, I, it gives me hope. I, yeah, well, right. I do see them as more analytical, mm -hmm. definitely. More analytical, well, more I, thoughtful. I look at my sister, Kathy, absolutely someone who thinks mm -hmm. all the time and watches and is suspect Very as true. well. She should be suspect of our system mm -hmm. and how she's being treated. And it's important. Now, she's older. She still has fire in her belly about all this. So it's yeah. good. Joe, do you remember that feminist publication, <laughs> Our Bodies, Ourselves?, Yes, I do. Okay, well, I have a vintage copy of that. I've, I've always kept a copy of it. And I'm now sharing it with my students. Mm -hmm. And this conversation really happened. So a young man said, okay, I, I see what this publication's about. Why is it important to me? And before <laughs> I could respond, a girl in the class said, 
Oh, I'm going to have fun explaining that to you. <laughs> Great. <laughs> good for her. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something right now. This is a good thing. There are twice as many women currently in college as there are men in the United States. Now, you know, it's worrisome that men seem to be losing their their place and their energy and their desire and their curiosity. That's definitely very worrisome. It bespeaks a real shift. Women are right now outnumbering men in college two to one. And I say, oh, I see. that's yeah. great. We're way, way past due for female leadership in Congress and way past due, way past due for female leadership at the presidency uh, level. And I just hope that what happens because of this change is that 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 takes hold because i've always felt i love my dad he's a good man but my mother was a remarkable human being and i just think they'll do a better job they yeah. nurture yeah. they build they build up they strengthen well you know i said they were more analytical well i think i think that because of my mother and her sisters, because I would watch the uncles and my father, and they would be essing about some sports, whatever, something, sometimes something important, but most of the time, something very benign or whatever. And my mother and her sisters would be discussing something much more about how the country's doing. What do you think of the new president? What do you think of what's going to happen next? They were engaged in survival. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe yeah. that's it. Maybe Health that's why. Health and strength yeah. of their children. They, they had the full ownership of raising their children back then. It was their responsibility. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that's why. The women, hey, it's the survival of the species is our responsibility. Yeah. We've got to make sure that our children and our families are strong. And that that required a much deeper level of thinking and analysis on their part. The guys were out there doing what they had to do at that time. Well, now it's not that way anymore. Now everybody... Well, there's this transition that we've been... It takes a long time. It's been yeah. going on for decades. But I think the model that we can learn from is the matrilineal model of indigenous society. Because in all indigenous society, the woman has a, a tremendous... They Well, first of all, they have the bloodline. They have the inheritance of the bloodline, which follows through the woman, not through the man. And I mean, that's, that's old. That goes back you know, centuries, that idea. And it, it offers, you know, Hollywood offered us the notion that it was the big chief, the big bad chief that was yeah. in charge of the Braves. In indigenous society, there can be the, the Sockums, the chiefs, but they, they have to respond to the circle of grandmas, you know, the, the elder women. Right. The, and, and if it doesn't wash well with them, it, it doesn't wash well. Yeah. And, and it's such an interesting notion because in that respect we're still trapped in a eurocentric model that's patriarchal and hierarchical and we don't really you know we broke away from from the from the mother country but we didn't break away from the the restrictions of that philosophical and political construct we still play the with it that was built yes yeah gonna with that up? i think we're going to wrap it up this is another very interesting conversation I'm loving where this is going, and I hope uh, I hope our audience feels the same way because that's why we're doing this. And I hope our children are taught these things and never taught that they should be ashamed of what happened, but they are taught about what happened. I yeah. never met a fact yeah. that was so damn dangerous you couldn't speak it out loud. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. What are we going to talk about next week, Chuck? Well, next week we're going to start some episodes from Chapter 5. That's the chapter on lead, plastic, and nail polish. 
So we're going to be looking into what are the compounds and what is their relationship to our health. Ouch. All right. We'll see you next week, folks. Thanks. our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange. It's your hometown used bookstore located at 61A Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Folks, you're going to love the book exchange. This is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can enjoy a book read by readers a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margins giving you an insight as to what mattered most to that previous reader. That's how the Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their 20 for $20 book stacks or their intimate author readings and signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks, their monthly Zoom and in-person book auctions, and Handmade Montgomery. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade crafts and keepsakes. And how about getting store credits in the form of book bucks? Bring your well-loved or gently used books in for a store credit. Now, it's closed on Mondays, but it's open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and on Sunday from 12 noon to 4 p.m. Want more information? Just go to MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. Now, there's one more thing. They even have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Now, my kids are all 30-something now, but I have four beautiful grandchildren, Jimmy, Sienna, Stella, and JJ, and I'm bringing all four of them down to the Children's Chapter. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The Children's Chapter is open Wednesdays through Saturdays. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652. MontgomeryBookExchange.com, your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place.